Well, we just sang, Gladly we surrender earth's deceitful treasures, pride of life and sinful pleasures. Gladly, Lord, we offer thine to be forever, soul and life and each endeavor. Thou alone shalt be known, Lord of all our being, life's true way decree. Did we mean what we sang? Tell you what, that challenged me as we sang through that last verse. Thank you for that song, brother. We're here to worship this morning in spirit and in truth. I started a series last time I preached on spirituality. I told you there was more to come from that. And that the title of today's message would be Christian Spirituality. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning. But I tried to lay a foundation at the first part of the message, or the the opening of the message last two weeks ago. And, And the foundation was the spiritual building the church and how we are a part of that body, that spiritual body. And through our personal spiritual lives being what they should be, then the church is built. And I was going to bring blocks again this morning and set them up here because there was one part of the message this morning that I wanted to include uh, in that illustration. It's a very simple illustration, so we can probably get it without having the blocks sitting there. But um, I think sometimes having something physical in our minds helps us to, to grasp uh, things in a different way. And and I believe that's why the New Testament uses physical things like a building and like a body to describe the spiritual building of the church. So this is a continuation, basically, of the last message. And in, in the last message, just for a little bit of review, we looked at how the Bible describes two parts of us, the inward man and the outward man. And the inner man is our spiritual being. And we looked at four parts of that. The mind, the thinking part, the gateway into our heart, the will, which is the choosing part, the conscience, the moral part, the emotion, the feeling part, or the affection. And that the difference between life and death is the condition of that inner man. Is it focused on our physical existence or is it focused on God? So verse in Romans 8 that really lays that out. Romans 8 verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded, and that word carnal there is the word sarks, which is usually translated flesh. And it means literally flesh or meat, M-E-A-T. Um, so to be, to be flesh minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And then we looked at how the Bible describes the condition of a dead spirit, the condition of a living spirit. And the living spirit is essentially the same thing as the Christian spirit or Christian spirituality. Um, And so 
the message this morning is not going to look at quite the same aspect as it did uh, two weeks ago, but rather we're going to dig deeper into, try to dig deeper into um, the operation of that living spirituality in our Christian experience. We looked at choice, a spiritual power that God gave Adam and gave him control of his spirit and that he gave all men the choice to live or to die, to have spiritual life. So there's been some questions that have kind of been in the back of my mind for quite some time, quite a few years. And I'd like to, to kind of share some of those questions with you this morning and, and for us to think about um, from a perspective of, of what spirituality means in the Christian experience and what sometimes how sometimes it's used in American Christianity and modern Christianity today. And do those things really line up with what biblical uh, spirituality is? And so I ask these more in, in general terms of the broad spectrum of Anabaptism in the U.S., not just, you know, our conference, our church, or any of that. But I, I want us to think about this. So why is it that the more spiritual a group or individual becomes, does it seem like that the veiling size gets smaller on the women and that modesty seems to decline the more spiritual they are? That people seem to want to reason away family responsibilities and that individual spirituality begins to have precedence over brotherhood. Now, maybe you've observed something different, but sometimes what I hear called spirituality tends to go in that direction, it seems like. Here's one that really troubles me. It seems like sometimes that as, as groups move towards more spiritual that the men tend to back off in their role as leaders in the home and in the church. And I'd like to just encourage us as men that as we, and we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school class, but we have a responsibility to be leaders spiritually in our homes and in the church. And are we taking that responsibility? You know, in Ephesians 5, it talks about the wife submitting to her husband. And we talk about that, you know, at weddings and, and when we talk about the relationship between the man and the woman, we talk about this issue of submission. And we think about that from often from the woman's perspective, or at least I have. But have we thought about what that means for the man? I'm telling you, brothers, that puts more responsibility on the man than it does the woman. Because if she submits to you, then you are the one who is directing her life. You have the responsibility to direct her. 
See, she's submitting to you. So you have a responsibility about the spiritual direction of your home and where that's going to take her and your family. So we bet we should be thinking about, we should be concerned about where we're going, about where we're going spiritually and what kind of people we are spiritually and where that's going to take us, our families, our church. Those are just some things that have been rolling around in my mind. And, uh, you know, for everything that happens, there's a consequence. For everything that we do, there's a consequence. Uh, There's natural law. Newton's third law of motion is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And when we see an object move, we know that somewhere there's a force that moved that object. Uh, Back in, I forget how many years ago it was that we had that earthquake. I was sitting in a cinder block building when that earthquake happened. And I heard this sound that sounded like a, a hard wind had hit the top of that building. I mean, it was, it was a vibration. And I thought, man, was that a huge gust of wind? And I stood up and looked out of the building. There was a, there was a flag hanging on the outside of the building. And the flag was just hand, hanging perfectly still. And I said, well, that wasn't wind. And there was a window beside me. I looked out the window to see if somebody had run into the side of the building. And about three seconds after that, a police officer came running into the building and said, did you feel a tremor? We just had an earthquake. But I knew that what I had experienced had come from some type of force from somewhere. had another experience just recently that really made me think about this and think about how young we are when we understand that. I was sitting across the table. Now, it wasn't directly across. It was, it was on an angle across the table from my two-year-old niece. And I enjoy children, especially young children. And I like to see their reactions to things and how they respond to things. And she was sitting there eating, and I reached my toe across, and she was sitting on a stool, and I just moved her stool just a little bit. And it was just enough that she noticed the movement. Well, she didn't just assume that was normal. She started looking. She looked under the table. She didn't see anything. She looked around her. Nobody was paying any attention to her. So she didn't know where this had come from. Well, her granddad was sitting right beside her. And he also enjoys young children and their reactions. And she says, granddad, she thought it was him. that had moved. But she understood that something, someone, somewhere, there was a force that had moved her chair. And we understand that natural law very well. In Galatians 6, we have a spiritual law that speaks to that same kind of reality. Galatians 6, verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. So it uses the physical illustration of a seed. You know, when you see a seed, you may not initially know what kind of a plant is going to come from that seed. I'm not very much of a farmer. And so there are different grass 
grain seeds that I really don't know what they're going to be if I plant them. Now, a farmer who really understands and knows the plants, he'll understand that. He'll know the difference between a wheat and a barley seed, for instance. And if I see them side by side, I might know. But when they grow up, I can tell the difference between wheat and barley. When they grow up and when they head up and I see the, and I see the fruit, when I actually see the heads of grain. What about the seeds that we plant every day? Are we planting seeds to the flesh? Or are we planting them to the spirit? And will, all, there, will there always be, in those little things, will there always be a big difference in how they look? You see, what we sow will always produce after its kind. If you come to my, if I tell you that I have a field of, of corn, and you come to my house and you see a wheat field, you're going to know that I didn't plant corn because it produces after its kind. And here it's saying in Galatians 6 that if we sow after the flesh, we're not going to reap life. We're going to reap corruption. If we sow to the Spirit, we're going to reap life. If we sow to the Spirit, it will produce after its kind bringing forth fruit of the Spirit. So how can we know if they're flesh seeds or spiritual seeds that we're planting? Well, I was, we talked a little bit about this in, in Sunday school class this morning, but as I was thinking about that, I thought about verses referring to the Bible. And the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But the actual verse that, that I thought about was in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and of the joints and mar, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God and the Spirit of God working together will shine into our inner being and will tell us what kind of seeds we're planting, what our heart is like, what's going on in there. The Word and the Spirit have to be working together, have to be present in the life. For us to really understand where we are spiritually, in which direction we're going spiritually, and where we're going wrong spiritually, and where we're planting the wrong spiritual seeds. And so the Spirit working in our lives and the Word of God need to be a very active part of the Christian experience. You may have heard the story about a lady who spanked her son for doing something naughty, and she told him to sit down on the bed. And he sat down on the bed and he said, I'm still standing up on the inside. You see, we know exactly what is happening there. So he's sitting down, but really he's not submitting. Well, I have a, a parallel story to that. There was a lady that had triplets, triplet sons. 
And they did something naughty and she spanked them and told them to sit down on the bed. And the first one sat down on the bed and he said, I'm still standing up on the inside. The second one stood up, kept standing and said, I'm sitting down on the inside. And the third one sat down on the bed and said, I'm sitting down on the inside. Were all those, were all those boys in the same condition? Matthew 5, 7 says, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. See, that's the first son. They were, they were honoring him externally, but internally their heart was far from him. People who were conforming outwardly, but they didn't have a living relationship with God an inner closeness to God. Your heart is far from me. The second son, Titus 1.15, But unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. Now catch this in the next verse. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. So these people are saying... They're professing that they know God. But inwardly, they're denying Him. I'm sorry, but outwardly they're denying. But in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and to every good work reprobate. Jesus told a story in Matthew 21. You can turn there if you want to. Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. This is in the context of of the scribes and Pharisees who were challenging Jesus' authority. And he asked them a question and they wouldn't answer him about the baptism of John. And Jesus says this, tells this story. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and, and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will. I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whither, whether of them twain did the will of his father? They said unto him, the first, Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. So do you think that these people, these two men, were like the first two men or the first two boys in my illustration? It would have the appearance that the first son was like the first son in my story. He said, I will, I will not. But later he, he repented and went. Or this, I'm sorry, getting confused. It, was like, it would appear that the first son is like the second son in my illustration. He said, I won't go. But later he repented and went. And he mentioned a key word. But Jesus mentions a key word that makes the difference. And that word is repentance. You see, repentance 
did not just change the way he thought, it changed what he did. But later he repented and went. So I'd like for us to to take a quick walk through repentance and think about what that means to us in the inner person. In Acts 2.37-39, through it gives a vivid description of repentance. And here's what it says. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So it's saying that when they heard this, so the word, the message of God entered into their minds. They were pricked in their hearts. They recognized that they had done something wrong. And they said, men and brethren, and they were sorry for that. Their emotions experienced sorrow, but it didn't stop there. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? See, that's a change of the will. That's a change of action. That's a change to their inner person. Before this happened, they had not experienced. They were not experiencing a desire to do something for God. They were experiencing their own way. But their way was changed. So at conversion, at repentance, we get a heart transplant. John brought that out last two weeks ago. He said we get a transplant of the will at conversion, and that's right. We get a transplant of the will, a changed will, a changed heart. What does that mean for us? Changed into what? What well, says, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, if you think back, we talked about how the in the Christian experience, there needs to be the active working of the Word and the Spirit together in the life of the believer so that he can know the will of God, so that he can understand what who he is within. So what does it mean to have this transformation take place? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. All right, I'm going to start reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read a couple of verses and I'm going to stop and make a couple of comments. We're going to work our way through this chapter. And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 
And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of spirit, of the spirit and of power. We'll stop there, and I want us to notice several things from this. First of all, he shared the testimony of God with them. That was the word of God. That was the message of the gospel. And so there must be, there must be the presence of the word there. He said it wasn't with enticing words of man's wisdom. Not with enticing, why not? Why was it not with enticing words of man's wisdom? But it was with the demonstration of the spirit and of power. You see, it wasn't a convincing display of human intellect. That wasn't what their faith needed to rest on. Their faith needed to rest on God. And so it was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that their faith would be God-centered instead of man-centered. Paul didn't want them to trust in him. He wanted them to trust in God. That's where he wanted their faith to be centered. Verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, Paul wants their faith, and our faith should be resting in the power of God. That's where the Christian's faith is centered. Verses 6 through 8. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that came that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, the message that Paul preached did contain wisdom, but it was not the wisdom of man. The wisdom of man comes to nothing. It comes to naught. This was the wisdom of God, which is for our glory. Verse 9 is a quotation from Isaiah. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. How then can we know? If God has prepared these things for us, how can we know? If I hath not seen nor ear heard nor yet entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared. Let's keep reading. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. So we have to have the Word of God and the Spirit of God. For God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So the Spirit understands the deep things of God, the inner things of God, God's heart. The Spirit of God understands God's heart. And then he goes into... Verse 11, it it redirects and and he gives kind of an illustration. For what man knoweth the things of man save the spirit of man which is in him? 
Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. So, who knows the inner workings of your heart or the inner, your inner thoughts besides you? See, you don't know what I'm thinking right now. I don't know what you're thinking. But in your spirit, you know where you are. You know your inner thoughts, your inner condition. Paul uses that as an illustration to say, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. See, it's the Spirit of God that reveals those deep things of God, that inner working of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So you see, this message that comes to us through the Word and through the Spirit is a spiritual message. And the Spirit of God opens up our understanding to the wisdom of God so that we can know the things that God has prepared for us. Verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. See, he doesn't have the spiritual life. He doesn't have the spiritual eyes to be able to see. He's spiritually dead. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judge of no man. He's judged by God. The inner working... That God works in his heart and works to recreate in him. And then verse 16, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So that the Spirit in our lives is working, is giving us the mind of Christ so that we can know the things that God is giving to us. We have the mind of Christ. What is that heart transplant? That heart transplant is to be the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ within us, working. Christian spirituality is not the collection of religious knowledge or thoughts. It is the shaping of who you are within. It is the forming of the mind of Christ in your inner person. Do you have the mind of Christ this morning? Christian spirituality is not the collection of religious knowledge or thoughts. It's not that you have the right answers. It's not what you know you should say. It's the forming of Christ in you. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.10 And have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Who you are. 
So the question is, if I'm spiritual, if I have repented and accepted Christ, is that what matters? Is that inner person what matters? Yes, it matters. But is that all that matters to being spiritual? So if in Jesus' parable of the two sons, if the first son had repented but had not gone and done the father's will, would that have been repentance? No, that wouldn't have been repentance. The parable had an intended outcome. That story did. The intended outcome was that the Father's will would be done. And anything short of doing the Father's will was coming up short of repentance. 1 Peter 2.5 says this, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. But that's not where it stops. It says to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So you see there's a spiritual house that's being built. But there's a purpose for that. And it's that spiritual sacrifices would be offered. The Christian state of being in the inner person is to be part of God's house. But his actions are to offer spiritual sacrifices. In Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about the Gentiles becoming part of the family of God, becoming part of the building of God. And he used the illustration of an olive tree. And he says that Israel was taken off because of unbelief. And you were grafted in. You Gentiles were grafted in because of unbelief. They were, they were taken off because of unbelief. You were grafted in by faith. And it's in that context, the context of that message that he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, because of that, because God has grafted you in, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So there's two things that Paul says in this passage that preclude us doing the will of the Father. The one is, be not conformed to this world. The other is, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the first one talks about our, how our physical existence has an effect on our spirit or our obedience to God. And the second is how our spirit directs our physical existence. First one says, be not conformed. The second one says, be transformed. I'd like to look at both of those and consider them and how they affect us spiritually. You know, our minds are incredibly complex. Very complex. One psychologist says that, you know, when you are in a relationship with someone and, and they fail you, 
and that relationship is, is shattered, it's just like, now I don't know them anymore. Because who I thought they were isn't really who they are. And sometimes we fail ourselves. And we realize that we only know a little bit about who we are, who we really are. Our minds are incredibly complex. And I was driving, oh, it's been a couple months ago, up Spring Creek Road out of Bridgewater. And there's this one turn, you go around the turn, and then there's a bridge. And so I was going around this turn and going across this bridge. And I don't know why or what made me think about this, but I realized that I was, my body was tensing up. And just like that, just as I realized that, I got to the far side of the bridge and there was this little bump on the far side of the bridge. And my body was tensing up and preparing for that little bump. I never had really thought that much about that bump. I hadn't even really thought that there was about a bump being there. But my body knew it was there and it was preparing for it. Why was it preparing for it? If that had been a road that I never traveled, I would not, it would not have been doing that. But you see, I travel that road every week. There's a repetition that happens. And as I am continually exposed to that, then my mind takes that into account subconsciously. And before I know it, it's changing what I'm doing. You see, the things that we do in the physical are constantly shaping our subconscious thought patterns, our thinking patterns, and they're shaping our doing. And when we find ourselves or when we recognize that we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing. It's not just a question about, we need to repent. It's not just a question about getting that out of our lives. It's a question about what is bringing me to this point. You see, we need to be taking the things out of our lives that are taking us to places of sin. If we're ending up in places of sin, it's because of things that are coming from within us. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So are there things that we're doing in our physical lives that are leading us into places of sin, that are subconsciously taking us towards sin? I think we need to be considering that. Because we live in a world that is full of the effects of sin. People all around us are sowing to their flesh. And we're going to be exposed to that. We're going to be exposed to that sin, to that lifestyle, to that attitude. It's going to be constantly around us. It's going to be pressing on us. What are we going to do with that? In another place in the New Testament says we, we're not going to be taken out of the world. Jesus prayed we'd be kept from the evil. But what are we doing? What part are we playing? Here it says, be not conformed to this world. How are we going to keep 
those pressures from changing the way we think. Changing us back into a flesh-centered mindset. This command, be not conformed, calls us to recognize the effects of our engagement in the world and directs us to a conscious, deliberate choices that will keep us from being ensnared by the world and by its mindset. Do we understand the significance of the things we do in relation to the health of our spirit? The things we're doing every day are affecting how we think about ourselves and about the world around us? Do we recognize the significance of those? The significance of what we watch, what we listen to, what we say, where we go. Do we think about the significance of those things? And why are we there? Why are we going there? Are we thinking about why we're going there? Here in a couple of weeks, I'm probably, Lord willing, going to be in Times Square. And there's going to be a lot of other people that are there for a very different reason than I am. Why am I going there? Let's say that I wouldn't go there for that reason, to, to be a witness for God, but I would go for the pleasure. Would that make a difference on how I interacted during my time there? It would. So we need to be constantly evaluating where we are and why we're doing the things we're doing. There's another thing that was really significant to me some time ago. I grew up in a setting where I was very distinctively different from a lot of people in society. And in... In some senses, I resented that, didn't like that. And as I came to Christ and as, as the Holy Spirit really began to work in my life, and I began to recognize some of my, my sinful thought patterns and stuff, and I started to recognize how careful I needed to be with my eyes. And I came to a place where I was really living in victory in what I did with my eyes and, and what I was doing with my mind in relation to going into town and seeing immodesty and stuff. And, and then I came to a place in, where I made some changes, some external changes. And, and those external changes conformed me more to the society around me. And I didn't think so much about that, but several months later, I realized that I was struggling with how I was viewing people, and specifically how I was viewing immodesty. And I'll confess to you, this is kind of an embarrassing thing to share, because I was failing in how I was viewing immodesty. And the Holy Spirit started to, to work in my heart and, and exposed to me some of the reasons why I was struggling. And, and foundationally, it was because I was viewing myself differently. 
than I had before. Because I, had, I was dressing more like the people around me, I've begun to think that I was more like those people. And so they, I was wondering how they viewed me because they weren't seeing me as different. Now that was all happening in my mind. But it was affecting, because of, the, because of the choices that I had made, it was affecting the way that I thought about myself and then ultimately how I viewed other people. Now that was me. But brothers and sisters, this idea of being not conformed to this world has to do with a mindset that I am a different person than who's out there than the other people that are out there, the people who are part of our society. We are different people. And we need to, that needs to be a very active part of our thinking process. And we need to do whatever it takes to keep that mindset if we're going to not be conformed to this world. And so I made a decision. When I came to realize that, I made a decision, a personal decision, about how I was going to do something differently than I had been doing it so that I could have victory and I could maintain that mindset. And it has been very helpful to me. Now that's a personal thing. But that's what our spiritual lives need to be doing. They need to be doing personal things in us that change us into the image of Jesus Christ. You see, we can't depend, we shouldn't depend, on others to tell us what to do. That's not what the Christian experience is about. The Christian experience is about Christ living in me and directing my life on a faith-centered basis because of what the Spirit and the Word are doing in my life. I am out of time. And so we're going to have to come back to this in the next message. And we're going to pick up on these, uh, these verses. But I just want to challenge us this morning that we are not here in Harrisonburg to assimilate with the people around us. If we do, we're going to lose the fundamental part of our faith. And there are many people in our world today, many churches who have assimilated and they have lost the fundamental aspects of faith. And we don't want to do that. We want to build with care so that we can re remain part of the building of God.